CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 48 Belonging and Becoming Strengthening the EU Project Welcome to CEE Central Europe Explained my name is Daniel Martinek, and I'm a research associate at the IDM, and I'm hosting this episode today with Nicolo Milanese. Hi, Nicolo, and thank you for joining us today. Hi, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for taking time for our CE podcast. Uh, before we jump into our talk, I would like to introduce you a little bit. Uh, Nicolo is a founding director of European Alternatives, a civil society organization promoting democracy, equality, and culture beyond the nation state. And uh, Nicolo, together with Lorenzo Marsili, wrote a book called Citizens of Nowhere, How to Save Europe from Itself. He has been uh, involved in many civil society and literary in initiatives across Europe to promote uh, civic education, democracy, human rights and political imagination. And that's also the reason why we are here today uh, talking to you. I think Europe or the European Union, as you name it, I think that's exactly what we need these days, these months, kind of political imagination and to think maybe a little bit bigger in a bigger scope. Because the topic of our today's discussion is belonging and becoming, uh, strengthening the EU project. What we could uh, observe in the past months or years, uh, at least in our target region, IDM target region of Central, Eastern, Southeastern Europe, is that growth and success of your skeptics, uh, be it at the national or international level, kind of proves that the EU needs to be strengthened and in some cases even kept alive. Um, European identity is a child of net of personal and institutionalized connections between people, countries and the EU institutions creates kind of Europe or European dimension. Maybe we can also speak about kind of European culture space where we share common culture, heritage, uh, history, maybe also public sphere and maybe one would say also sense of belonging. And that's exactly what I would like to talk about with you today, because we once believed that fundamental values such as human rights or rule of law, liberal democracy is something that brings us together. But my question would be, is it really so? Are not these issues precisely the bone of contention in many countries, also within the European Union, but also beyond, which kind of divides our European societies? But maybe before we go to this question, I would start from the very basics, from the question, what is, in your opinion, exactly the essence of Europeanness or of European identity? Thanks. Thanks for this question, Daniel. I think that I don't believe in trying to define a European identity in exclusively positive terms. Right. This seems to me to be kind of a facile reading of what a political identity or a kind of political concern can be, because we know that the history of Europe is deeply problematic and large parts of it don't at all respect the kind of values and fundamental right that, that, that you just mentioned. And I think that to be European is to have a kind of deep concern and problematic relationship with a set of histories which are linked with uh, this continent. And those histories are, of course, 
present inside of the European Union and what's usually called Europe, and also um, have their extensions across the world. And they're precisely extremely problematic because they have ambiguous dimensions to them. An enormous amount of harm has been done, both internally and externally, by Europeans to themselves and to others. At the same time, Europe has been the site of various political and technological and scientific innovations not least a certain version of, of democracy, which is still very important to us, and, and human rights and various other universal values. And I think that being European is to be preoccupied with this problematicity, our common European history, and trying to think about how this should be taken forward in the future. So a philosopher that's very important to me in thinking about European identity is the Czech philosopher Jan Patochka, who talked precisely about living in problematicity, so not trying to escape the problems or the paradoxes. This is something deeply important about European relations with, with democracy. And also thinking about Europe after Europe. So Europe has already in some way collapsed at least several times, most obviously in the world wars, but it still has to be there. And so we have to continue to find ways of working with this continent which we've inherited, even with all its problems and even with all the ways that it has already failed. And this is kind of our common predicament as Europeans. Thank you very much, Nicola. I'm very glad that you mentioned uh, Jan Patočka coming originally also from Czechia. So thank you very much for that. But uh, of course, as a civil society organization or a think tank based in Vienna dealing with the region, the issue of the European project or EU project, uh, as you name it, it's it's very much uh, our daily basis work. And we try, of course, to convince people or support the people to really stand behind and backing the, the EU project because we believe that only through cross-border and regional cooperation we can actually uh, cope with the current uh, challenges but uh, not only within the Europe but also geopolitical challenges so my question would be because you mentioned this rather negative aspect of Europeanness uh, if I can put it this way this complexity of European history which influenced not only the, the whole continent, but also other uh, other parts uh, of the world. Um, do you believe that this should be something which should bind us together or which should kind of promote, facilitate the support for the European project? Because I'm not so sure if the ordinary people would like to be preoccupied with such issues. I I do believe that they would rather prefer a positive perspective of this Europeanness, which would uh, consequently motivate them to 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 support the, the European project. Look, I think it's important that, that we have a kind of honest and authentic uh, vision of what the European project is and what it what it means to be European. And that's that's what I was trying to indicate by saying that just being kind of unrealistically positive about if it's European, it's great, is obviously insincere. And I don't think anybody's going to buy it. And I think that means a couple of things, actually. I think one uh, thing is to make a distinction between Euroscepticism and Eurocriticism. So being a critic, even being a kind of heretical European, uh, to, to use another uh, term that Patochka picked up on, I think should be welcomed. And there should be more space for a critical uh, approach to European policies, uh, the way certain European institutions work, 
and, and that's something different than being uh, skeptical of the whole project itself. But often people who are pro-European tend to confuse the two things and take any kind of criticism of current European policies or recent European policies as criticism of the whole project itself. And this, this is bad for democracy. Uh, because obviously, you know, European democracy would mean having different alternative views about what the European Union and the member states ought to be doing. And there's plenty of good reasons uh, for for being quite critical of recent policies, whether one thinks that the financial crisis or way, waves of migrants are, are not welcomed in, in our continent and other things. So need to make a distinction between Euroscepticism and Eurocriticism. The other aspect of this, though, is to to have a coherent European narrative based on its history, we have to acknowledge the dangerous tendencies that have always been present inside of Europe and acknowledge that many of those dangerous tendencies are still present. And indeed, we still have the same combats. And so, you know, to my mind, fascism is not something that is is, is confined to the 20th century. Uh, there are political leaders of European countries these days who more or less explicitly link themselves with fascist heritage. And this we have to be extremely clear about, that this is precisely what the European Union was built to to combat and to get, get rid of. And we can't have a kind of normalization of fascist or racist or xenophobic uh, tendencies inside inside of the European Union. So I think that being genuine about also the problematic dimensions of Europe's history means acknowledging that those uh, dimensions are still present in in not just the leaders, but also uh, in some parts of the citizenry, and being very clear that that is exactly the opposite of what this whole project is about. Uh, at the moment, there's a kind of historical distancing that is made, and, 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 and the dangerous tendencies are kind of sometime in the past, and that allows that allows people to hide. And that's that's really not serving the European project at all. Thank you. You touch upon uh, different topics uh, or from different perspectives. I would be interesting maybe even more in in this idea of a current European narrative. But before that, uh, I fully agree with what you are saying when it comes to all these different kinds of isms, which are still there you know fascism and so on that's that's not over for sure as you mentioned uh, before and my question would be taking that from the perspective that also many achievements or many positive things which the european project brings to the citizens are going through these so-called national filters in many cases or in majority of cases it depends uh, very much on the national governments how they perceive the, the eu or the european project itself And through their political and other communication, they actually shape the public opinion within the individual countries. I would like to ask you, do you think there are any other ways how we can actually establish kind of a workaround or different strategy, how to better communicate the advantages and the positive sides of the European project, not allowing the national governments, which might be critical or skeptical uh, of the European Union, not to allow them to give them the space to to shape the public opinion on the European Union? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I think that there are various ways that um, we could try to do this. I think that there's institutional kind of ways. So I've always been very much in favor of transnational lists for the European Parliament. So the possibility to vote for candidates who are from throughout Europe, not just from your country, 
and I, and I, the reason I'm in favor of that is I think it would open up a genuinely trans-European debate, which wouldn't all the time be going through these national filters. Uh, so that's one kind of institutional uh, innovation that could achieve this. Another kind of institutional innovation would be transnational citizens assemblies. The European Union has already been kind of experimenting with uh, citizens panels and citizens assemblies over the past couple of years with the Conference on the Future of Europe. I think that still in the methodology of how that was carried out by the institutions, there was a bit too much assigning people to their national identities in the way that the deliberation was structured. But still, there was a potential for this kind of an, a kind of ambition for a transnational debate. And the, the commission says that it's committed for this sort of deliberation to continue to be a part of European policymaking. So I think there's some institutional avenues. That's not even to go to the questions of whether the veto should be uh, fully removed from, from the council's decision-making procedures. I think that that debate has to acknowledge that the space of minorities in the minority languages, smaller countries in the in the European Union needs in some ways to be protected or fully taken into account. The veto is kind of the ultimate safeguard of that, uh, but maybe we don't need such a strong safeguard. Maybe there's other ways of, of approaching this issue. But perhaps outside of these institutional things, I think that there's really something important for civil society and citizens to do, which is to acknowledge that Many of our political concerns and issues, of course, cross borders in every kind of way, whether it's as simple that you know, anti-gender discourse might be start in one country and very quickly spread to another, or whether it's common problems around flooding and fire and so on. In multiple ways, our issues cross these, these borders, and we ought to be a lot better at organizing ourselves across borders to put pressure simultaneously on political institutions in different countries. Because at the moment, one can think of it a little bit as if the, the national powers, and particularly those uh, governments that want to take away rights and liberties from us, are benefiting from the fact that we're divided and they accentuate this division. This is particularly the case uh, with people who are minorities inside of their countries who are particularly being attacked. So LGBTQI people, uh, migrants, Roma, one could say women in general, given the kind of patriarchal attitudes of some of the most uh, dangerous governments in in Europe these days. And we should be a lot, lot better at coordinating and mobilizing amongst us across across Europe when a government tries to, for example, take away the right to abortion or the right to adopt a child. And unfortunately, over the past couple of years, I don't think we have shown as civil society this kind of solidarity. And that's allowing these national divisions to be to be instrumentalized by uh, forces which are against against democracy, ultimately. I would like to follow up uh, exactly on the on the last issue you mentioned, uh, because that brings us actually to the topic we discussed before. You you spoke about this kind of normalization of, of these tendencies, kind of eroding democracy or dismantling of democracy, which is happening particularly, uh, unfortunately, in, in the countries of our target region. What would be, in your opinion, when it comes to the issues like migration, basic human rights, women rights, um, but also the role of media, role of education, changing the curriculums and so on, 
what would be your suggestion? Should there be any kind of institution established or how we can institutionalize actually this this public sphere where all these debates would take place? Well, look, I think firstly, I wouldn't say that the problem is somehow only or above all in Central and Eastern Europe. I think that it's important to see that these kind of phenomena happening across European countries. You know, I'm speaking to you from France and uh, the ways that the right of protest has been um, has been infringed upon and police violence has has prevented people or attempted to prevent people from freely protesting against environmental degradation and other kinds of things is 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 part of these symptoms as is the general poverty of the political debate and lack of political alternatives in a country like France so i think that these illiberal tendencies are actually more structural to a contemporary form of capitalism or neoliberalism than people usually want to admit when they try to geographically locate them as if a liberalism were a kind of disease emanating from some particular part of the body politic. It's not like that, uh, to my mind. So firstly, I think acknowledging that these tendencies, uh, of course, to different degrees and in different ways at present in all European societies is important. And I think that that is also actually a basis on which the uh, European institutions could be much stricter in starting infringement proceedings, holding back funding, uh, starting investigations, and ultimately removing the voting voting rights and taking stronger measures towards towards countries which refuse to accept equality between the genders, the right to protest, freedom of speech, and the rest of these things. And I think that the the European elite has been much too timid in its approach to to this because of a kind of misplaced fear of the population. They they have the fear that if they push too hard, then whole countries might want to somehow leave the European Union. And I just think that this is a misreading of the attitude of regular citizens, even in places like Hungary. No matter how, how Eurosceptic people might be or critical of the European Union, if it really came to the point of a leader like Orban saying, okay, we're going to leave, then I think that people would think very carefully about whether this is this is a wise thing to do and to follow him in, in doing. And so I think that in a way, the European elite hasn't had enough confidence in the European citizenry and their willingness and their realism about staying part of the of the European Union. So that's uh, about the, the fact that the European institutions could be much quicker uh, could be more decisive in the way that they intervene. It's not as if uh, you know this, these problems haven't been going on now for some time. I mean, there's many of us have been pointing out for at least a decade, if not two decades, of the dangers that are being posed to bases of European democracy by various tendencies, and the European Union is just very, very slow and reluctant to act on that. Then uh, I think that the, the um, one of the things that right-wing populists are able to benefit from is this kind of spectacularization of politics, whereby you can easily have the impression that large parts of the society are supporting these kinds of far right wing policies. And I simply don't believe it's the case. And it's simply and it's certainly not the case if one looks across European borders and at the and at the population as a whole. But we're not very good as people who are opposed to right wing tendencies to showing our strength and, and how numerous we are to oppose this kind of tendency. And so very simply, we need to show up. But where are the protests in 
supporting Polish women and their right to abortion. Where are the mobilizations to condemn the right-wing fascist steps that are being taken in Italy? This kind of very simple visibility, putting our bodies in the in the street to show that there's a there's an alternative Europe to this kind of vision of a decaying continent. This is a basic form of politics that we have to recover. Thank you. I think that many experts or many observers of the European affairs are drawing this evolution from the outcomes of the elections. You know, when the people are simply voting for these Eurosceptic or Eurocritical parties, they do believe that that represents the spectrum of the societies, which might not be the case. And I, I would like to continue on this positive note, uh, because I do believe that's the case, as you put it uh, before. And that is just a question of this misreading or misplacing of the public opinion, as you mentioned, but thinking in that framework uh, and going in that direction, we know that we elections to the European Parliament are going to take place uh, next year. I would like to ask you maybe as a final final question, how would you motivate people to vote in the European elections? Well, I think that we have to have some engaging narratives coming out of the different European political parties about what they want to achieve, and I haven't. I haven't yet seen very, very engaging narratives coming out of most of the political groupings. So, but hopefully that's going to come. I think that the European Commission could be slightly more direct about uh, what it's been able to achieve and what it hasn't been able to achieve uh, over the past mandate, most notably when it comes to social justice and intergenerational justice, that the great pride of the European Union in the last elections was to have increased the turnout marginally, and notably to have a youth mobilization uh, of some degree around the elections. My feeling is that the European institutions have rather taken the youth vote for granted uh, over the past five years, if one looks at the way the, the, the pandemic was dealt with, and even the way that the recovery funds allocated, I don't see an overriding concern with either social justice or with intergenerational justice and the uh, difficulties of the young. And I also think that if one of the great motivations for many young people to turn out uh, in the last European elections was around green issues and the European Union leading in climate change, Uh, or in addressing climate change, there as well, the the commitment of of the EU to to this issue has started to be rather tarnished by corporate lobbies and uh, geopolitical interests. And I think that there's a need to be kind of direct and honest about that if one is to get the trust of, of even people who voted last time back, rather than kind of sweeping these issues under under the carpet. So I think some leveling with people and some honesty is quite important. Then I think from the civil society point of view, explaining to people the stakes of the European parliamentary elections is always necessary. Firstly, quite how much power the European Parliament has as having co-decision over most aspects of European affairs. Secondly, very simply, that who you vote for in, in the European Parliament gives a great deal of resources and visibility to those people who, who and the parties that end up to be present in the European Parliament. And so one can't treat it as simply a, a protest vote that doesn't have any consequences, uh, which unfortunately is one of the tendencies of this kind of nationalized political sphere that you referred to, that people want to just protest against what their national governments are doing. 
often for good reasons, but but that has consequences when you do it at the European at the European parliamentary elections, and those consequences you need to really think about. And of course, thirdly, we've got to articulate a a, a vision which speaks to current circumstances of war and the importance of democracy in a kind of global uh, competition about how our societies are best structured. And I think that in that context, it's rather been forgotten and it's become unfortunately absent from large parts of the public discussion, the reasons why uh, Russia has, has, has invaded Ukraine. And that is because Ukrainian society rose up and said, we want to live in a democracy and under European norms uh, and created the Euromaidan. And this was an unacceptable challenge to the power of Russian tyranny and oligarchs. And so they, they, they wanted to come in and crush it. But we have to be uh, very clear that the, the deep reason why we as Europeans have to support our brothers and sisters in Ukraine is because they have mobilized for the same values we say we believe in. And the, the elections are deeply about reaffirming those values. And that also has a consequence in, the, I think, the way one votes. It's not just about voting. It's also about carefully thinking about which parties and the values that they support that one's voting for. So I think that those are some elements of the narrative that have to be involved to motivate people. Thank you very much, Nicola. Uh, I think we, with that, uh, we actually arrived to, to the end of our today's episode. So thank you very much uh, for that. Just to sum up, so we need direct, honest uh, communication on behalf of the European Union with the population. Then we should also clearly communicate or articulate the issue of the importance of the European Parliament, that sending the representative to the European Parliament has its value has its importance and leave behind this this nationalized perception or public sphere and third the vision of importance of democracy in general and the way how our societies are structured and influence of the democracy on this structure uh, should be also stressed i hope that all these developments will will take place in the upcoming months to the european elections hopefully the transnationalists or transnational parties currently existing in Europe will have their role in that. But as you probably know, uh, before we conclude our episode today, we have a nice tradition I shouldn't uh, forget. And that is that we uh, always ask uh, our guests to recommend a piece of art, music, literature, or movie, or whatever uh, comes to your mind, um, or anything else which kind of deals with the discussed topic today. So my question would be, what comes to your mind if we speak about Europe, European public sphere, transnationalism, European identity, and the importance uh, of democracy? Yeah, that's a great question, Daniel. And, and you know, um, often in my mind these days is some lines from a poem by W.H. Auden, the English poet who went to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War. And following that experience, he wrote perhaps perhaps one of the greatest English-language political poems of the 20th century, called uh, In Time of War, in the 30s, what he called an age of anxiety when they were anticipating the, the Second World War. And in, in that set of poems, there's a commentary that he's written. And in that commentary, which is a kind of poetry poem itself, there's these lines, he says, you talked of liberty, but were not just, and now your enemies have called your bluff, for in your city... Only the man behind the rifle had free will. 
And I'm thinking often of these lines because I think that this question of liberty going together with justice and being authentic about that and honest about uh, the connection between those two things is really crucial in these days. Because if people start to think that those, that link is not made or that our politics is not really supporting both liberty and also justice, then there's a risk they start to believe the people who are opposed to democracy. So that would be my recommendation. Thank you very much, Nicola, also for, for your recommendation and for these words, which uh, I think nicely conclude our today's episode. Thank you for taking your time. I hope to see you Uh, at another occasion be it here in Vienna if you have the chance to come again so thank you very much once again and this was the another episode of our IDM podcast CE Central Europe Explain This was CEE Central Europe Explained a podcast series produced by the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe If you enjoyed listening to us Make sure to subscribe to the IDM podcast series on your favorite podcast platform. Additionally, you can explore our other work on our website www.idm.at. If you have any feedback or if you're interested in collaborating on a podcast episode, please do not hesitate to contact us through our social media channels at IDM Vienna or write us an email to IDM at idm.at IDM Podcast Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa Institut für die Danube Region und Central Europe European Perspectives Regional Actions Cooperation and Expertise since 1953